0: When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. When Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, the servant's name was Marcus, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Jesus was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. "'You aren't one of those, this man's disciples, too, are you?' she asked Peter. He replied, "'I am not.'" It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify. As to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples. Two, are are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a cock began to crow. This is the word of the Lord.
1: if we could imagine a brief interlude. This is a long passage. I woke this morning to Bach's great chorale, the Matthew Passion, O Hauptvolle Blut und Wunden, O Head, O Sacred Head, Sore Wounded, and the music which followed. And I would strongly encourage you in these coming weeks to try to listen to Bach. We had the good fortune, my wife Liza and I, to hear the John Passion in Berlin a couple of weeks ago. And I have to say, it's set the tone for this time in our minds. Um, Deeply spiritual experience. To continue, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anybody, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate what is truth with this he went out again to the Jews who gathered there and said I find no basis for a charge against him but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover do you want me to release the king of the Jews and they shouted back no not him give us Barabbas Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. and He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief peace answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Would you keep that passage open? Lord, speak to us. You are speaking to us. We hear you. Disturb us where we need to be disturbed. Challenge, equip, encourage. Do your work. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2,000 years ago, the life and teachings of one man were making waves. Others had come before him and claimed to be something special, but their impact didn't last. However, the people around Jesus' time, they knew, they could see there was something different about this man. Crowds flocked. To listen to him. Fast forward to the 21st century now, and he's still in the news. Listen to these words. I wonder if you know who said them. My personal feeling is the teachings of Christ are more relevant now than they've ever been. Do you know who said those words? This guy, Russell Brand. Uh, you, you may or may not know him, even if you've got a very surface level knowledge of this chap, you know, he's a comedian, he's an actor, he's an all-round provocateur who's, uh, and you'll know that that statement is a very shocking one coming from his, his lips. Now, this was a guy, Russell Brand, who brought his drug dealer in to work with him at MTV when he was a video jockey there. And, when he, was, and he was found shooting up heroin in, his ba- in the bathroom at his office Christmas party. And that's when his agent realized his whole career was going to be shipwrecked if something didn't change, to Russell Brand right now. And so after a very public, you can read about if you just Google him, you'll find all sorts, a very public 15 years or so of drink, hard drugs, and lots of sex, he finally sought help. And in a recent interview, I mean, it's the most incredible turnaround for someone like him. In a recent interview, Russell Brand said this, every man who knocks on a brothel door, he's looking for God. Crack houses and these dens of suffering and illicit activity, they're all people trying to feel good, trying to feel connected. People are trying to escape. People are trying to get out of their own heads. To me, this is a spiritual impetus. And he goes on to say that you and I, we're all addicts. We may not be literally knocking on a brothel door, but we're all looking for fulfillment in things that will only leave us empty. And because instant but quickly fleeting gratification is always at our fingertips, Amazon Prime, Instagram likes, pornography, text messages, even the news, we've all become addicted. And Russell Brand feels the world is profoundly broken. He's not the only one who thinks that. And he described how the uh, the 12-step program that's used by AA and other groups, how it changed his life. He said this, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And then he explains the steps in slightly more modern, more profane terms. He says, says it's essentially getting uneffed up. I wonder if someone asked you why you come to church if you give them that response. (laughs) Well, it's not just Russell Brand who sees the relevance of Jesus Christ. When Field Marshal Montgomery asked Winston Churchill what he thought about Jesus Christ, Churchill said this, Jesus Christ was unsurpassed in his capacity to save sinners. Or maybe you could relate to the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky who described Jesus' life in these terms. He said, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there could never be anyone like him. But what about other faiths? What do they make of Jesus? Well, these are from the lips of Gandhi. He said, I know of no one who has done more for humanity than Jesus. And even the Quran. The uh, Islamic teachings, Surah 19, declares that Jesus was without sin, alone among the prophets. Doesn't say that about Muhammad. Surah 40, 55, Muhammad asks God for forgiveness over his sin. Even the Quran declares that Jesus, alone among the prophets, was without sin. Now, whether you know a lot about Jesus, or very little, maybe the first time you've heard about him this morning, know this. His life was matchless unparalleled in the history of human experience. And yet, what we've been hearing about this morning, I I got the sense from the readers that they too, like me, were moved by the account. We read that he endured the most grievous miscarriage of justice the world has witnessed. So that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at the five and the one. If you're the kind of person who likes making notes, we're going to look at the five betrayers, And the one who was betrayed. And we're going to zoom into the passage together. Like the ripples from a rock dropped into water, there are five concentric circles where Jesus is betrayed. And the first ripple is this. Who was Jesus betrayed by? His closest friends. Jesus and his friends, his disciples, just the night before, do you remember, had celebrated the Passover meal, the Jewish feast of the Passover, the Last Supper, as we know. They're celebrating it, the two- and three-year-olds are celebrating it next door, the Last Supper. They're all practicing giving the bread and saying, do this in remembrance of me. That's what the disciples did the night before. And it was a feast, the Passover, that lasted for seven days. And Jesus has just finished praying the great high priestly prayer in John 17 for his disciples he just finished praying for them and he crosses from Jerusalem through the dry Kidron Valley and he goes up with his friends to the garden a walled olive grove the garden of Gethsemane literally meaning oil press and it was probably set aside by some wealthy supporter for the use of Jesus and his disciples because look at verse 2 of chapter 18 they knew it well It was a familiar place to Judas. Now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas knows he's going to find Jesus in the garden and it's it's nighttime. um, So it's an ideal time and location to arrest him. But still he's taking no chances. Look at verse three with me. Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And we know it was nighttime because they were carrying torches lanterns and weapons in other words it's a well-organized arrest and with his greed for 30 silver coins incidentally the ransom price that was set for a slave the price to set a slave free with those 30 silver coins Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends Judas a man who'd been invested in by Jesus A man who'd seen miracles in the name of Jesus. A man who'd seen the integrity of his life. Throws it all away. His greed. He hands him over. But Judas isn't the only friend who lets Jesus down. Peter. Peter who'd experienced the glory of Jesus at his transfiguration. Who declared Jesus to be the Christ. The son of God. He too disowns his dear friend. And he denies even knowing him. Look at verse 17 with me, if you will. Chapter 18, verse 17. He's asked by a slave girl, the lowest person in society. He's asked, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, asked you? Self-preservation kicks in. He's terrified for his own life. And he replies with three words, I am not. And then look down at verse 25 again. He's asked... You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Again, the lie continues. I am not. And then again in verse 26. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And with the fatal third strike, he denies his master. And the cockerel crows. Judas betrays him with a kiss. Peter betrays him with three words. A bomb has detonated in that tight-knit group of friends. All that time they've spent together, all that they've experienced and enjoyed and that they, they've seen of Jesus Christ, lies, greed, self-preservation, the first ripple of betrayal begins. We get to the second ripple, the justice system betrays Jesus. Jesus is brought first to the Jewish religious leader, um, Annas, in verse 13. He's brought him first to Annas and then later to Caiaphas. And they were both religious and judicial leaders for the Jewish people under Roman occupation. Now, in those days, religion wasn't just a private moral thing, as a lot of people understand it to be now, sort of disconnected from the rest of life. No, the Jewish religious leaders also made legal judgments over their people. And the whole trial of Jesus is a sham. Remember it was night time? Well, nighttime proceedings were viewed as illegal. Look at verse 19 with me, if you will, of chapter 18. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Annas is questioning Jesus, which, again, wasn't legal, since witnesses were supposed to be brought in first to establish guilt. The accused wasn't required to prove his innocence, now, some commentators suggest that Annas regarded this just as a preliminary inquiry and not a trial. But Jesus's response in verse 20, if you look with me, seems to suggest he's challenging the justice system to follow its proper legal process. Look at verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. In other words, Jesus is calling for witnesses. He's saying, I've not had one message in private and another in the open. It should have been easy to find witnesses. Verse 22, we read, he's slapped or struck in the face. Another illegality. What a way for a priestly courtroom to treat a defendant. He's still bound, remember. But he still remains uncharged. Testify as to what is wrong, Jesus says. So much for a fair and open trial. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, betrayed not just by his closest friends, but by the religious leaders, the justice system. The ripple continues. The third ripple. He's betrayed by the state. Look at verse 28 with me. The state. He's then led by the Jewish leaders from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, Pilate. Maybe now he'll get a fair hearing in in the Roman court. And Pilate asks him in verse 29, or asks the Jewish leaders, What charges are you bringing against this man? What charges? He still remains uncharged at this point. And the clear answer is that the Jews had no charge that would stand up in a Roman court of law. A pilot wants them to sort the matter out between themselves, but the cat is out the bag. In verse 31, look at verse 31 with me. This is where we see their real motives. But we have no right to execute anyone. <laughs> in other words, they were looking for an execution, not a fair trial. Now, Pilate realizes that this is a serious matter for the Jews to be demanding an execution. So he questions Jesus. But do you notice something that he repeats three times as if to labor the point? I wonder if you picked it up. Verse 38, look with me. Halfway through verse 38, he says, he goes out to the Jews again, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Then go down to verse 4 of chapter 19. Pilate comes out again to the Jews gathered there and he says, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Two verses down in verse 6, he says again, As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. In other words, Pilate pronounces Jesus innocent not just once, not twice, but three times. And yet, Pilate cowing to the crowds and trying to appease any sort of rebellion at the height of a Jewish religious feast, look what he does in verse 16 of chapter 19. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate, the state, if you like, betrays Jesus too. But notice it's not just individuals. It's also the public. This is the fourth ripple. Just one week earlier, crowds of people had come with palm branches to Jesus, crying out, Hosanna! Do you remember? We're celebrating that next week, Palm Sunday. Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel! And then with the same irony, Pilate asked, do you want me to release to you the King of the Jews? They'd been... Crying at him as their king the week before. Now what are they shouting in verse 15? Take him away. Crucify him. The crowds. The public. All betray Jesus. The betrayal of Jesus runs deep. He loses like dominoes. His closest friends. He's let down by the religious leaders. He's let down by the state, the justice system, the crowds. And he's left. An isolated, lonely figure, a life without parallel. But there's someone else who betrays him. I wonder if you noticed it in the story. And he or she is looking on, warming themselves by the fire with Peter, denying they know him. Sitting at the back of the Sanhedrin listening to the high priest's questioning and remaining silent, standing with with Pilate as they're pulled between the crowd and the crown of thorns, and shouting out from the crowd the same words of take him away, crucify him. I'm there. You're there. We can't point the finger of blame. We're all culpable of sending that beautiful, kind, perfect Jesus to that cross, of betraying him. Could we just have the next slide? Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an outspoken critic of Russia's terrible gulag labor camps, and he personally suffered terribly under the regime. And he puts it succinctly, he says, "'If only it were all so simple,' If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The five betrayers. And the one who was betrayed. Now the twist in the whole story is this, and there are two things I want us to notice about this: two things: the one who' is betrayed. Firstly, Jesus is in control. You can smile now. <laughs> Jesus is in control. He predicted his death time and time again to the disciples. He'd said, "The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, handed over." to Gentiles, will be flogged, will be killed, and on the third day he will rise again. He said it several times. They didn't get it. Look at verse 4 of chapter 18 with me. When Judas comes to betray him, we read, verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. He hands himself over. (laughs) Do you notice the response the soldiers have when he asks, who is it you want? He goes out to them. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Do you notice what happens? Look at verse 6. When he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They, they were staggered. They couldn't believe this man. They've come with clubs and soldiers expecting a, a mob uprising. He hands himself over. He knows it's going to happen. He knows it's part of his mission He knew Peter was going to deny him. He predicted that he'd deny him three times before the cockerel crowed. Do you remember he tells Peter to put his sword away? Look, verse 11. He commands Peter, put your sword away. He doesn't want Peter, however well-intentioned he may be, to get in the way of him carrying out his costly mission. And then even down. I love this little detail in verse 8. Of chapter 18, even down to the tiniest detail, we see Jesus is in control. He asks the question to the soldiers twice, who is it you want? They can't quite believe it, that he's handing himself over. Jesus, I am he. He asks them again, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. And then he says, verse 8, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. He's even fulfilling prophecy in his arrest. Verse 9 says so. Listen to these words hundreds of years before from the prophet Isaiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Remind you of anyone? Look at verse 9 of chapter 19. Pilate asks Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you just don't get it. I'm in control of this. (laughs) He's not the victim. He's the hero. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So Jesus is in control. And secondly, why did Jesus do this? The one who's betrayed, he's in control. And secondly, Jesus is completely committed to you. Jesus is completely committed to you. Why did he do it? Well, we get to eavesdrop in on a conversation between the Godhead. It's the most wonderful thing, actually. I wonder if you realize that. Eavesdropping in on a conversation that's going on in heaven between the Father and the Son. Just a chapter or two earlier in John 17. Why don't you flick it? Uh, Back to me, just a page. And I just want to show you this little prayer that Jesus prays to his father. Verse 24, he says these incredible words. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. What does Jesus want? What does he pray for? He wants those you have given me. In other words, he wants his followers, his friends, he wants you and me, if we're following Jesus today, he wants us to see, behold, savor his glory. And his glory is bound up in his relationship with his father. Look at verse 24 again, the glory you have given me. The father has given his son glory. The father declares his son Jesus glorious, and the son displays the glory of the father By remaining obedient to him. What do I mean by that? Well, how do you make your dad look good? Well, we do. We do a lot of swimming with our boys, and uh, when they first started out swimming, they're five, three, and one now. When they first started out, they were a bit scared of jumping into the water. They're scared of having water over their heads. And so, what Guy would do is he'd get into the pool and he would stand about a meter or so from the poolside, and he would tell them to jump to him. And that he would catch them as they jumped into the water. How could they make their daddy look good? Not by running away, but by leaping full pelt into his arms as the water engulfed them. And that's precisely what Christ has done for us. He has known a deep intimacy with his father since before the creation of the world. And he glorifies his father by going to the cross. And he wants you and me, he wants us to know, to experience, to enter into the same relationship he's enjoyed with his father. That's how committed he is to us. That going through betrayal, heartache, enormous physical pain and suffering and spiritual detachment from his father was worth it. Do you believe this? When this grips your heart, it changes everything. And I'm just going to finish with a story to show you just how committed Jesus Christ is to you. Well, there's a story about a a 20-year-old man who, uh, because he was a student, he was skint, uh, but he was serious about Jesus Christ. He was skint, but he was serious about Jesus Christ. And he told the Lord one day that what he would really love is a wife who he could partner with in the gospel, in sharing the gospel. And a friend introduced him to his sister, uh, this friend's sister, who frankly he thought was a little bit bonkers. But uh, she was sold out for Jesus. And God told this chap that she was going to be his wife. Didn't tell the other girl this, but told him this. But the problem was that this sister lived on the other side of the world and, and he was skint. And so he would write her a letter each week. He prayed for her. He talked on the phone to her every day. He loved her. He fell for her. And he, he wanted to be with her. Um, so he spent everything he had on two things. He bought a one-way plane ticket. And he bought a ring. He didn't have a job to go to. He didn't know how he'd pay his first month's rent. All he had was £100 that his mum gave him as he went to the airport in his pocket. And a ring. He left his homeland, which he loved, his friends and his family, because he was that committed. And we've been happily married, (laughs) probably could see that coming, for 10 years this coming summer. Jesus Christ is far more committed to you than Guy even is to me. (laughs) Solzhenitsyn asked the question, Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Well, Jesus Christ was willing to go through injustice, suffering, and even even death for you. His perfect, sinless heart was destroyed by your sin and my evil so that our hearts will never ultimately be destroyed. We can know inner peace because of Jesus, our peace, by his wounds you are healed. He will never fail you. He never lets you down. Guy lets me down. (laughs) He's always with you. He's in control. And the cross is his guarantee of how committed he is to you, that he wants you to enjoy him forever.